Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At 31 years old, fresh off a tour promoting her first collection, Cowboys Are My uh, Weakness, Pam Houston had no job, no place to live except my North Face VE 2410, she says. On an impulse and a good instinct, she spent her royalties on a 120-acre ranch near Creed, Colorado. It was more than she could afford, required more maintenance than she could imagine. Uh, manage, rather, and uh, yet 25 years later, it's a piece of land that's defined the largest part of her life. And her new book is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. In it, she tells the remarkable story of, quote, that girl who dared herself to buy a ranch, dared herself to dig in and care for it, work hard enough to pay for it, to figure out what other people meant when they used the word home, end quote. Pam Houston uh, joins us for the hour. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. So uh, you're you're on a pause, I think, in the book tour. A little bit of a pause. A little bit yeah. of a pause. You got more to come, but you're heading to Alaska. I see. I am. I'm heading to Alaska in two weeks. Just a a quick trip because I'm teaching now at Davis for the teaching quarter. So I have to go up on a Thursday and come back on a Tuesday. <laughs> so okay. A quick okay. Trip. Yeah. And then you have um, you have students come out to your place, right, in Colorado. I do. I do. I have a private writing group that, um, that that comes to the ranch to study. And back in the day when I was scrambling to pay for the ranch, I set up a lot of ranch workshops as a way to, to earn the mortgage. Yeah. Um, and you've uh, you said, Riley, that um, for someone who travels in excess of 100,000 miles a year, maybe choosing a home five miles from the airport wasn't the best plan. Five hours. Five hours, yes. Sorry, five hours. Yes. <laughs> Not five miles. Um, yeah. It makes a big I mean, difference. That was, especially given the climate crisis and fossil fuels and my carbon footprint, it wasn't It wasn't good, but I did buy a Prius to kind of mitigate that travel. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a long way. Um, what I do to make use of my time in the car, well, one thing I do is try to cluster my trips, so I go out for a while, you know, and then I come home for a while. Um, but the other thing I do, I teach so much. I have a program on my phone called Natural Reader, and I put my students' manuscripts into the phone, and the automated voice reads it to me. <laughs> so I'm, oh, okay. I'm working on my students' work during those 10-hour round trips. That makes makes you efficient. Um, yeah. you, you've said you're, you're happiest when you're on the move, something, I guess, from childhood. Yeah, it's true. Um, my parents were travelers, and we, you know, every time we got $20 ahead, we got in the car and drove to the beach, you know, whether that beach was New Jersey, if it was the summertime, or Florida, if it was winter. And I do. I love a new place. I love being on a new stretch of road. You know, I love flying to a country I haven't seen. And, you know, I, I am really enamored with the new. It always excites me, partly because that's part of my writing process is, you know, recording my experience in the physical world. And when that physical world is new, it, it, it makes it easy to write, you know, it makes it easy to see it. Sometimes it's harder to see the place you've lived for 25 years, which was one of the challenges writing this book. I wanted to get into talking about this, uh, this place that you now call home. I wonder if you, do you have your book with you? I do indeed. Yeah, I wonder if you just read that uh, the first page from the introduction, just that first long sure. paragraph. Yes. Uh, 
the introduction is called Some Kind of Calling. When I look out my kitchen window, I see a horseshoe of snow-covered peaks, all of them higher than 12,000 feet above sea level. I see my old barn, old enough to have started to lean a little, and the low-ceiling homesteader's cabin, which has so much space between the logs now that the mice don't even have to duck to crawl through. I see the big stand of aspen ready to leaf out at the back of the property, ringing the small but reliable wetland, and the pasture greening in earnest, and the bluebirds just returned, flitting from post to post. I see Isaac and Simon, my bonded pair of young donkey jacks, pulling on opposite ends of a tricolor lead rope I got from a gaucho in Patagonia. I see Jordan and Natasha, my Icelandic ewes, nibbling on the grass inside the goose pen, keeping their eyes on Lance and Elsie, this year's lambs. I see two elderly horses, glad for the warm spring day, glad to have made it through another winter of 30 below zero and whiteout blizzards, of 60-mile-per-hour winds, of short days and long frozen nights, and coyotes made fearless by hunger. Deseo is 27, and Roni's over 30, and one of the things that means is I've been here a very long time. <laughs> In excess now of 25 years, right? That's um, right. So, uh, tell me this fascinating story. How you how you got here? You were, this was your first book was unexpectedly successful. You had some royalties. And um, your agent yeah. was it? Your agent said, "Don't spend it all on hiking boots." <laughs> right. Um, I was just done with grad school, and my book was out, and I had been paid twenty one thousand dollars for the book, which. I was a grad student making about $4,500 a year, so that was a terrific amount of money and uh, more than I'd ever seen and more than I ever might see again. And my agent said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. So I got in my car. I wasn't living anywhere at that point. Um, And I drove around the West because I knew I wanted somewhere in the West. And I gave readings from my book at little bookstores and... uh, and I uh, looked, talked to real estate people and looked at land. And I got down to Creed, Colorado, um, which was a place I had gone because two other writers told me about it. Robert Boswell and Antonia Nelson had said, check out Creed. They didn't know that much about it. They had just heard it was cool. And I got there. And first thing that happened is I got invited to a wedding. And I, I met three women who were all there, who had all come there single, and they were doing their own thing. One had opened a jewelry store for horsehair and silver jewelry. Another had opened a coffee shop. And this was 25 years ago. So she was making Creed people their very first lattes. And another, sort of the riskiest, right, had opened a cut flower store, you know, in a county of 400 people. It <laughs> seemed like a crazy thing to do. But everyone was supporting them, you know. And, and so that appealed to me. And then I went out and saw this beautiful piece of property, and um, it was the the asking price on it made my twenty one thousand dollars, which was still in a check form, by the way. That's how afraid I was of spending it. It was still a, in a check in my backpack, and uh, uh, that represented just under five percent down of the asking price of the ranch, and. You know, I fell completely in love with it, especially the barn um, and the meadow and the view. 
And the real estate guy who took me out there, he said, you know, I think Donna Blair, that was the widow who was selling the place. He said, I think Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. So why don't you give me your $21,000 and a signed hardcover copy of your book, which was Cowboys Are My Weakness, and I'll see what I can do. And the next day, Donna Blair agreed to sell me that ranch for 5% down and a signed hardcover of Cowboys. She carried the note herself because literally no bank would have lent me $5. I, I had no job. I was living in my car. <laughs> you know, I, I, I had the book, but I didn't have three pages of another book to rub together. And, um, and I bought it because I was so astonished at her faith in me, you know, not that we knew each other, but the fact that she would take that chance meant that I should take the chance. And, you know, I bought it in a kind of adrenaline rush, like no one had believed in me that way before. And, um, yeah. And so then I was off on the story of the rest of my life. (laughs) You know, I just (laughs) didn't exactly realize it at the time. And isn't that the way? We, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and then life passes and then we, you're right. We, we get to a certain point and we, we realize that more of our life's behind us than ahead of us while we were sure. looking at other stuff, trying to do other things. That's right. That's um, right. And paying for the ranch became, you know, my motor, you know, <laughs> like needless to say, my mortgage payments were very high. Um, it was a 15 year note at first. So it, they were incredibly high. So I just, mm. I just wrote anything anybody would pay me money for. And, you know, that motor that that was just make the, make the payment, make the payment sort of directed me through my life to really wonderful things. I mean, writing for wonderful publications and taking teaching jobs that I loved. But um, then all of a sudden, you know, 25 years had gone by and I had paid it off. And I was like, wow, that was that was my life. You know, that was the bulk <laughs> of my life. I guess, yeah, that 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 motor you say that you know that, that kind of that hustle gets you some good things. You, you do write that you you did write some things you weren't totally into. Clint Eastwood is my hero, kind of a thing when he when he wasn't. <laughs> no, he wasn't. I wrote a few articles that I was a little, um, you know, articles. Let's say that I would not have chosen or that I didn't really feel the way I was feeling when I wrote them. I also wrote the insert for an ant farm. Um, for uh, for Mattel, I got paid a thousand dollars to write the inside of an ant. You know the the packet that comes with the ant farm. Um, no, I, I wrote a lot of things, um, and you know there are so many writers out there, right? Friends of mine who I teach with, who you know the first thing they say to young writers who want to to write is like, whatever you do, don't encumber yourself. You know, like like don't get a mortgage, don't buy an expensive car. You know, whatever you do, just keep your expenses really minimum so you always have your time free to write. And that's really good advice. I hear it constantly. But for me, it was just the opposite. It was like, I got a mortgage to pay (laughs) and I have to sit down and write. And so it was just the opposite kind of motivation, you know, and it it kept me writing and um, at least some of the time kept me, you know, from going hiking instead of working through a difficult paragraph or assignment. Mm -hmm. And you, you're right. You you found healing uh, there. You 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 know you you were fiercely determined to take care of this land. In the end, you say it took care of you. Absolutely. I mean, the ranch grew me up. It turned me into an adult. It 
it sh- it taught me responsibility. I mean, I have to show up there for, you know, in all kinds of ways that, you know, I never imagined when I was a kid growing up in the suburbs, you know, intense weather and sweeping my own chimney and coating my logs with UV protector because it's at 9,000 feet. So the UV just eats through everything, you know, having to give an animal a shot in the middle of the night, afraid I might kill it because my driveway snowed in and the vet can't get to me and I can't get out. I mean, there's a million things that I learned how to do because of living out there in those extreme conditions. And so, so there was that side of it. But the other side of it is just this place that's mine, this place that I feel safe and protected by the mountains. Um, I grew up in a, in a violent household and never really felt safe as a kid. And this ranch is, I mean, just the, the, the physicality of the valley is so protective. I've got 12,000-foot mountains on one side and the Rio Grande, the, the, the very, very young baby headwaters Rio Grande on the other side. And, and um, you know, it's just a place that the second I come around the corner and when I'm back from teaching or back from speaking or back from the rest of my life, my whole body just relaxes when I see the ranch from the, the corner of the dirt road that leads out to it. And, and it's given me a place to, to be quiet and be still and hear my own voice and um, come to terms with myself and my past. It's, it's a wonderful sanctuary. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll, we'll hear more from Pam Houston. I want to hear um, some more adventures, and including you're up at 9,000 feet, and uh, one of the worst fires ever to happen that part. Uh, mercifully spared your ranch, but uh, you, you write extensively yeah. about that. Um, in, in fact, uh, next passage I'd like to have you read is uh, page 181. From okay. page 181, it's not specifically about the, the fire, but it kind of get us into your, your past a little bit as well. Um, Pam Houston's new book, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, is out. We have her for the hour. And uh, you can join this conversation by phone, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, your question or comment to Pam Houston, or by email, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Utah Public Radio is part of something that has never happened before. UPR is one of six NPR member stations chosen by StoryCorps for a new project they've been working on. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they are attempting to put strangers together, folks who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. We will be traveling around the state of Utah collecting these conversations with the hope of having people realize that we have much more in common than we think we do. We are looking for people who are willing to participate, people who are interested in talking with a stranger who, at first, may seem like they have nothing in common. Is this something you'd be interested in? We hope you consider participating. Anybody is welcome. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That will take you to a page with information, examples of these kind of conversations, and most importantly, a questionnaire all hopeful participants will need to fill out. Again, go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, 
all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Pam Houston, author of uh, several books, including Cowboys Are My Weakness, is out with a new book, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And she talks a lot to hear about her uh, ranch at 9,000 feet near Creed, Colorado. Um, we're talking with her for the hour. Uh, mentioned that uh, Living on Earth is coming up in just an hour, uh, less than an hour now, following this program. And uh, and the program this week features a, a conversation with uh, Pam Houston. So stay tuned for that as well. Uh, so Pam Houston, you, you bought the ranch. You encountered the ranch uh, in September Beautiful, beautiful, um, and and then I imagine you go through your first winter there. <laughs> well, the winter's beautiful too. <laughs> um, in certain ways, the winter is the most beautiful because it's so silent and white. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I I had lived um, in Park City, Utah, in fact, and I I had lived in the Rockies, so I wasn't you know I wasn't new to winter. Um, I, I, I knew what winter was. 9,000 feet is, is higher than I had lived, and, and uh, just the isolation factor and the factor that, you know, sometimes the plow doesn't get there until the fourth day or something like that. That was new. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't the winter that, that, that scared me or that got to me. It was, it was kind of my own helplessness in the face of trouble. You know, I, I, I'm not handy. Um, I have learned my way around a few power tools in the 25 years. But yeah, I always say it takes me three extra trips to the hardware store. Like, I'll get it because I, I do have tenacity. I, I have incredible will. Um, but I don't have talent as a handyman. And um, so it was really like, it, it, it was the fear of the responsibility, you know, of like, like, what if, you know, what if, my miniature donkeys get high centered in the pasture because we've gotten 48 inches of snow in seven hours. You know, it was, it was that kind of thing. It was the fear of not living up to the task of taking care of the ranch. And uh, I guess you just have to learn as you go. Learn. From you your... have to learn as you go. Yeah. You know, I had very generous neighbors um, who, you know, I would basically in the early years, I, you know, every time someone came over, They'd say something like, "Oh, when was the last time you swept your chimney?" And I was like, "Oh, check, <laughs> sweep chimney," you know. Or when was the next time you put UV protector on your logs? And I'd be like, "Okay, find out what that is," you know. Mental note. And and you know, people. I mean, in my county, it, you know, it's a very small town. It's a very close community. People show up for each other. I mean, how many times have I? needed help and someone has come, you know, whether it be the sheriff or the, or a friend or somebody with a tow truck or whatever, you know, if people help each other there. That's the ethic of the town. And so I've been the beneficiary of that. Um, but yeah, it was definitely learn as you go, to say the least. It's still learn as you go. Um, you, you recently got married. So that, I did. That, that, that you say cuts down probably the trips to the hardware store, maybe? Yes, he's he's more handy than I, and he's lived in that country even longer than I. He's been in the valley for 40, 40 years, roughly. Um, 
so yeah, it will help to have a second opinion and a better opinion. Um, and uh, there's a young man in town who um, restored the homesteader's cabin recently for me, and he's been a, a great addition to my life because he he can not only fix things, he can make them beautiful. And yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of help, um, a lot of help, and a lot of a lot of self education. You know, there's YouTube videos for almost everything. <laughs> yeah, that's the advantage nowadays. Yeah, YouTube videos. Yeah, it's really true. You, you tell a uh, you tell a fun story. Um, I guess you you're now husband. You're you say you're having an argument, and you were you were stressing your independence. Yes. Uh, I wonder if you tell me. <laughs> and then in the middle of it, you realize, oh, you know, maybe you could help out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I I was uh, we were out there that the, we have a ram, an Icelandic ram, who just loves to hit his head against things. He's which you know, hence hence the name. Um, <laughs> but he. He likes to hit against his head against things more than any other ram I've ever had. In fact, when he was born, he literally hours after he was born, he tottered over to me, looked at my shin, and then, boom, you know, just like rammed my shin when he was like two pounds and two hours old. Um, and so he broke some of the barn, and I love the barn. And so we went out there to try to put the boards back up and repair it, and... Um, he, my husband is a lot taller than I am. And, you know, we were out there and he was hammering away and he was hammering away and I was the one holding the boards. And it was the first time, you know, that I wasn't the one hammering the boards in 25 years. And I just, I had a little crisis, you know, I was like, oh gosh, you know, um, should I be hammering the boards? Should I let, what does it mean if I let him hammer the boards? And, and, uh, Anyway, um, it was a it was a moment where I had to consider myself and consider what marriage meant and <laughs> consider that I wasn't going to be able to do it myself forever. Mm. Uh, I wonder if you tell me a little bit about uh, some of the people in town. Uh, this is this is a real community, right? A small small town, small county. People look oh, out absolutely. for each other. Yeah, it's the sign. They update the sign. There's a sign when you drive into Cree that says something like. 517 nice folks and 23 sore heads or <laughs> some numbers like that. And they do update the sign, both the population and the sore heads. Um, and, but it's, it's a wonderful town. I mean, and like I said, you know, I would have failed miserably without, I mean, the, the first person who comes to mind is Doc Howard. He's our vet, uh, Dr. John Howard. And he came there to retire and wound up working you know, five days a week, <laughs> well, well past retirement age. And, you know, he's the one who'll come out in the middle of the night. You know, he's the one who's put my dogs to sleep. He's, he's who, he's the first person I call when there's, when there's trouble. Um, and is a, a great gift in my life. Um, there's Rick Davey, who has sold me hay for 25 years. He's one of those ranchers who could, you know, fix everything that's broken at the ranch with one hand tied behind his back. Um, and he's been a, a, a great gift. Uh, there's RJ Mann, who I mentioned, who, who repaired my cabin and is just a beautiful person who loves the old buildings. You know, I have this, he's going to help me work on the barn this summer, um, get it back to, to he, I think what he's going to do is going to build like 
a frame inside my barn to hold up my barn because it's now more than 100 years old and it's leaning a little. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I could go on, but, but mm. the, the, there was Bertie, the old postmistress, who's a, a wonderful being. It, it's, it's, it's a beautiful town full of beautiful people who, you know, our, our first, uh, you know, our first order of business is, is to show up for each other. And, and, you know, there's, Obviously, there's liberals there, there's conservatives there, there's all the usual small-town stuff. But basically, in a blizzard, you know, everybody's going to stop thinking about that and worrying about helping each other. I guess that's the that's the advantage, maybe, of a small place. Everybody kind of has to pull together. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had, um, you know, we've had, obviously, fires, and, you know, we've had other natural disasters that, that have really required that. I mean, the fire, the the West Fork fire being the most obvious um, of 2013, but we've had other fires and then we had, you know, floods after the fires. And, um, you know, in this, in this time of the planet's history, you know, we, we're always on alert for fire. We had a drought last year, um, terrible drought. My pastor didn't come up. Uh, We had very little snow, not this, immediate last winter, but the winter before, and then very little rain in the summer. So everyone was out without pasture, you know, which is a less dramatic crisis than a fire, but still a crisis for a lot of the ranchers up there. Before we get to the fire, I want to uh, get back to maybe changing climate. Um, there, <laughs> interesting passage. You say one of the things you've learned is the only way to get rid of bed bugs is to haul that mattress out to the middle of winter and <laughs> leave right. it there for 48 hours. Yeah, I found out that um, barn swallows, which we have a lot of, uh, carry bed bugs, and I used to just let them nest on on the garage, and the barn, and the house, and then we figured out that they have bed bugs, and the bed bugs can get in, and so now I discourage them from nesting on the house. I let them have the garage and the barn, but. Um, but yeah, that winter, the bed bugs were terrible. And I don't know if you know anything about bed bugs, but you never know. It's very hard to know if you've gotten rid of them because they can go dormant and, you know, you think they're gone. And then months later you get the little line of bites again. And so, yeah, the way I got rid of them was just took both mattresses out in the yard, set them on top of the snow on nights. It was 35 below and, and it, it killed him. <laughs> that was one of my that was one of my unique fixes that I think I made up myself, but it worked. The uh, the bark beetles, of course, um, are you know, devastating some of our forests. Uh, the way to get rid of those is, I think, to you know have harsh winters. Are or is the climate changing there at nine thousand feet where you are? Absolutely, it is. You know, and, and I have seen such change in my twenty five years. Um, it feels, and I'm sure that the numbers would not bear this out, but the way it feels is that it's 10 degrees warmer all the time, you know, and, and like I said, I'm sure that's not precisely true, but it is several degrees warmer all the time. People used to freak out if it got to 80 ever in Crete at 9,000 feet. And now we have day after day after day where it's 86, 87, 88. And, um, and likewise, you know, we always had at least a week of 35 below. And um, I bet you this year, I mean, this year was a pretty good winter. We had good snow and, and pretty good cold. But I bet it never got 
below, 25 below, you know, which which may not sound like a big difference to people who live in temperate climates, but but it is certainly a big difference for the bark beetle, just to name one thing, mm. you know. Um, and you, you've said that, uh, you know, this is a small piece of land, but as long as you own it, it's not going to be a cell phone tower, right? It's going to be open land, not going right. to cut down the trees. I, no, and it's not going to be subdivided. And and I mean, there were people who really wanted to put a cell phone tower on it and put a lot of pressure on me, but I did not cave. And and the what one thing I did that um, I have done since the book, uh, actually, the day that I left to go on tour, which was January 23rd, the last thing I did before I left town was um, sign the papers to put the ranch into a, a, a land trust. There's a conservation easement on it now. So literally, it, no, it, even if I get run over by a bus tomorrow, it, it can't be subdivided or drilled. It can't have a cell phone tower put up on it um, in perpetuity, as long as there's a United States, as long as there's a Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's gradations of environmentalists. Uh, I was interested, and I mentioned the Living on Earth episode, which is uh, coming up at 10 o'clock, uh, which will feature Pam Houston. I was I went to uh, the comments section there on Living on Earth, and one of the comments, I, w- I want to run past you, um, the, the person said, uh, that's great, you know, love Pam Houston, but she's essentially a rancher, so how can, you know, <laughs> she's questioning your bona fides as an environmentalist. And, and you get that. There's, there, you know, there's kind of mm. that, that infighting. I wonder what you would would say in turn and maybe suggestions people they're concerned about the environment what do you do um you know just locally well i mean as i said at the beginning you know i i am an environmentalist i've been an environmentalist all my life but i fly a hundred thousand miles a year you know you said it and that makes me a very poor environmentalist you know uh, on on the other hand, I didn't have children, you know, because I because I'm an environmentalist and I keep my house at 58 degrees, you know. I mean, we all we all do what we do. Um, and and I, you know, I am a, a rancher per se. I I take really good care of the land. I have very few animals for 120 acres. At the moment, I only have six. So. Um, and I've had more, but I, you know, I have been super careful not to overgraze the land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but I'm not making excuses. I mean, I mean, every, every person on this earth is responsible for climate change and for its destruction. Um, and, and my flying is much worse for the earth than my ranching, but um, as, as I practice ranching, but it's, you know, we all have accountability and, you know the first, the first order of business of a memoirist is self-implication. So, um, so sure, you know I'm I'm part of the problem. We are not all part of the problem equally, um, but we're all part of the problem. And and I try to be a good steward of the land. And 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 you know the most important thing I've done for the land in my life. I mean, you could argue that my my books have helped, but but the most important thing I've done is get that ranch into a conservation easement so it can't be developed Mm -hmm. and so that it will remain, you know, a grassland. Um, And whoever takes care of it next will have to decide whether they're going to overgraze it or not. But, but at least it's open land that the elk, you know, I have 300 herd of elk that use it to get to the river in the winter, you know, it's habitat for the Rocky mountain bluebird. I mean, um, it, it, 
it's part of a corridor that's very, very critical to wildlife, and and now it will stay that way. Subtitle of the book, uh, Deep Creek is Finding Hope in the High Country. Hope uh, there, I'm sure, refers to, you know, several different levels, but talking about uh, climate, what, uh, what overall, are you hopeful? Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I feel, I mean, there's a, there's a line in the book where um, I talked to an environmental scientist and he says, oh, well, the future of the earth is, you know, super grim in the hundred year frame looks terrible, but in the 500 year frame, it looks pretty good. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, there, there will be hardly any people left, but the ones who are here will have learned a ton. You know, it, I mean, he said it all earnestness and, and, and I do find hope in that. I mean, I think, you know, I think the science is really clear and, and I think, um, you know, we're in the sixth extinction and I think we're, you know, life as we know it on this planet is going to change drastically in the next hundred years and maybe in the next 10 years, you know, I I see the changes all the time at the ranch. I see the changes all the time with the fires and the floods and the beetles. And, you know, it's, it's in my face every single day. Um, the drought last year, it was the first year ever. I didn't have a pastor, you know, in 25. So, so I see it constantly. Um, and it seems like, especially with the current administration that we're, all we're doing is trying to put our foot on the throttle and run off the cliff sooner. So um, that's terrifying. Um, but I I find a kind of hope in in the in the way the Earth regenerates and the way she keeps cleaning up our messes. And and I believe she will clean up the big mess we make. You know, eventually. And it and the Earth will be some other thing after we're gone. Um, uh, and I do find hope in that. Um, but what the book's really about is is a kind of plea not to or at least a commitment on my part not to turn my back on the beauty because i'm so afraid of the future you know i i am afraid of the future and i am grieving um the earth as it was you know the 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 forest before the beetle kill and the ocean before the coral bleaching and you know the 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 arctic before melting but there's still so much beauty here and i want to celebrate it you know while i'm alive i want i want to 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 not turn my back on the beauty as some attempt to protect myself from my fear and grief over the destruction let's uh, take another break when we come back i'll definitely get to the fire and i'll have you read that uh, that passage the uh, book is deep creek finding hope in the high country our uh, guest is pam houston more following this Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Milieu Design Interior Design and Architectural Firm, specializing in new and repurposed construction located at 75 South, 600 West in Logan, creating commercial, hospitality, and residential spaces. Information at MilieuDesign.com. Utah Public Radio's newest show began in the line at a university coffee shop. Standing before me was a historian. Behind me, there was a physicist, and as we waited to order, we solved all of the world's problems. We'd like to create more situations like that, so each week, we're going to introduce you to two scientists working on very different issues, and then we're going to introduce them to each other. That's Undisciplined, Fridays at 2. On the next On Being... 
You're seeing yourself and your own pain, your own dilemmas orchestrated in this marvelous way. And the Souls of Black Folk continues to this day to be able to move me as few other works can move me. How W.E.B. Du Bois speaks to the American soul of his day and ours. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Pam Houston. She's a prize-winning author of Contents May Have Shifted, among other books. She's a professor of English at University of California, Davis. Lives on a ranch at 9,000 feet in Colorado, near the headwaters of the Rio Grande. The new book is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Uh, so, Pam Houston, I want to talk about the uh, West Fork Fire. This was a huge, huge fire. Came fairly close, I think, to your ranch. Uh, you described yep. this in a in a riveting uh, passage, you know, chapter in your book. Yeah, it was 109,000 acres at final count, and it came within within a mile of the ranch, probably within a half a mile, um, depending as the crow flies, you know. Uh, and it it surrounded us for um, you know for a long time. It was a, a a long burning fire. It had three different fires within it, and there was a lot of fear that the two biggest fires were going to merge. And it, had they merged, they didn't actually merge. But had they merged, they would have merged right out my kitchen window, essentially, right on the mm. mountain behind the ranch. Wow. So, you know, fear fear is going to take your place, and it's firefighters are, you know, trying to protect property all over the place. Amazing, the firefighters. I mean, we burned from the 5th of June until well into July. At one point, firefighters outnumbered residents of the county uh, four to one. Mm, wow. <laughs> and, and, um, and, in all of that time, including days with tremendous blow-ups, days where the fires ran seven miles in an afternoon, um, we lost one structure in that entire time, wow, which is just a testament yeah. to the firefighters. They, yeah. they were on, uh, there were three shifts on the fire, you know, which is basically so there would be overlapping firefighters all the time. And, you know, there's so many homes that are right up against the trees. Mine my home is out in a meadow, um, and I learned a lot about how meadows, both meadows and aspen groves, protect and will turn a fire, you know, if when encouraged by the firefighters. But there were so many houses that were right in the trees, and they protected all of them. So uh, you also say uh, stands of aspen are, are important. That's right. I have a, a stand of aspen at the back of my property that's Kind of the, I mean, there there are trees scattered on my property, but in terms of being in the forest, the first forest is an aspen forest, and and I learned from um, from the the fire, the commander of the fire, a woman named Beth Lund. She said to me at one of the fire meetings, "Oh, I had said I, I basically most of the fire was out, but the the active part of it was still right out my kitchen window. I would watch the flames at night." And everyone else in town was talking about how we were done because so much of the fire was just in, in what they call mop-up. But the only active part was right behind the ranch. And I went to her and I said, you know, everybody's talking about being in mop-up, but I'm still seeing flames out my window. And it was a kind of a beautiful moment because, you know, you, all, you feel so alone in a fire. But she was like, oh, no, 
you know what's going to save you is your little aspen grove. So she knew exactly who I was. She knew exactly where I lived. And she knew exactly what I was talking about. And, and yeah, aspen groves hold so much water in their trunks. And, and some of them will burn, but they will radically slow a fire. And with help from the, for, from the firefighters, they, they can use an aspen grove to turn a fire away from houses. I wonder if have you uh, read a passage, uh, page 181. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in the section on, on fire. It's not directly about the fire. We get us into talking about your, your past. Uh, so starting be, with the first full paragraph, because I'm a prose writer, then can finish okay. over the page. Yep. Uh, because I am a prose writer, I'm compelled to find meaning in the fact that the West Fork Fire has its biggest and most dangerous day so far on the only holiday in the whole year I ever feel like celebrating. In two weeks, and after 20 years, I'll be taking my final ranch payment to Donna Blair. What message if it burns down the very same summer I make it mine? What message if the very same day? And even if the house and the barn are saved, what will I be left with? Charred mountains on all sides of me to look at until I die? And what if the elk are gone? the mule deer, the bears, and the birds. No more giant stands of aspen quaking gold in the third week of September. No more fresh scent of living spruce forests on my daily cross-country ski. Another lesson from my childhood. Once the thing I fear most happens, there's no place to go but up. Being cut out of my father's Cadillac with a chainsaw by highway patrollers on Christmas Eve, for instance, was so much better and sitting in the bar with him while he had his fourth martini, knowing black ice was forming on the road outside. Being in the safety of the hospital while they applied my three-quarter body cast with all of the nurses making a big fuss over my four-year-old self was so much better than knowing my father was about to pick me up and throw me across the room. Waiting is terrible, but soon, maybe very soon, the bad thing will have already happened, and I'll be able to start from whatever I have left. The forest has needed to burn for a long time, I say to myself, before turning off my computer for the first time in days, putting my head down, closing my eyes. If the worst happens, I will spend the rest of my life watching it recover, one stalk of fireweed, one tiny aspen shoot at a time. That resonates with me, I'm sure, with with most uh, listeners, most readers, it's it's the fearful anticipation ahead of time, right? That's maybe mm-hmm. worse than the actual bad right. thing, bad though it may be to, to happen. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your. You write about this in your your book, your your childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents, you write that didn't want to be parents, maybe shouldn't have been parents. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the truth of it. Um, they had me very late in life. Um, they married very late in life, and I think they were both very used to their single, childless lives. Um, they both drank a great deal, um, and they, uh, you know, they they preferred other parts of their life to parenting, to say the least. <laughs> and so you suffered, I mean, you know, physical abuse. Your dad I mean, broke your leg, uh, you know, you mentioned here throwing you across the room. Sexual abuse—it it just, just horrible. At you know, point where you would hide in the dryer, I think, to right. get away. I, I hid in the clothes dryer. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's 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 interesting because 
when I wrote this book, um, the, the first draft of it didn't contain that stuff. And it was really very ranch centric. It was all the ranch all the time. And, um, and it was my agent who said, isn't this the book where you really talk about what happened to you as a kid? And my reaction to her was, gosh, have I done anything besides that? You know, it seemed like all my books had that under the surface of them, but it stayed under the surface. And in this book, because I wrote so plainly, I mean, in this book, I kind of feel like it's sort of me unadorned, you know, it's, it's just me speaking plainly about my life. I, I spoke plainly about that, too, on her recommendation, because, you know, she thought, I think rightly, that like the ranch is solace from what the ranch is healing from what, and if I didn't say what the healing was from, you know, it 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 left a hole in the book. And you know, I I, I got many wonderful things from my parents: a sense of humor, a love of travel, a love of sports. You know, they fed me, <laughs> they housed me. I mean, I I'm a writing teacher, and so I read about people's traumas all the time. And you know, my trauma seems kind of middle of the road compared to a lot of the things I read. And so I don't feel like a victim. Um, but writing this book brought me to kind of a, a greater understanding, not only of my parents, um, you know, I'm childless myself, and I, I value my childlessness. I mean, I, I have many children in my life, many young people in my life that I mentor and that I love and that I care for, but I myself am childless. And and I understand that as a as a self-definition that you might not want taken away from you, you know. Um, but the main thing is, you know, and, and my mom gets the very last words of this book, She, which, which uh, uh, yeah, I have said, you know, makes me kind of wish, hope that there's a heaven because, or, or something, where she could look down and see that she got the last words of the book because she would get such a kick out of that, that like she got the last word in my memoir. Um, it would be a thing that appealed to her. Uh, but, but the fact is, you know, my parents didn't want me around. They sent me out to love the earth. They sent me out into nature. My mother used to say, I don't even want to see you till dinner. And so I went out to the woods and I found mothering and I found nurturing, you know, in the, in the little woods in New Jersey and Pennsylvania at the ocean. And then ultimately in the West, you know, the landscape that I fell completely in love with and 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 the ranch, you know, ultimately the ranch. And, um, you know, I learned to let the earth mother me, and that that may sound corny, but, but I literally did. I mean, if I'm really, really sad, even today, what I want to do is go out and lay on the ground. <laughs> you know, I want to find a, a crook of a tree to curl up in. You know, I, I, I found that way to get mothered. And and the natural world did a really good job. So, um, and if I hadn't had those parents, like what life would I have right now? I have no idea. Maybe I'd have a terrific life, you know, but the life that grew out of me having those parents is one I love so desperately. You know, I love my life. I love my teaching um, and, 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 and my writing and, and my outdoor life. And, and would I be, you know, would I be as compassionate a teacher? Would I be um, as dedicated a friend, you know, if I hadn't had those early struggles? I don't know the answer. But I'm, I, I writing this book, and I would have never thought so, because, you know, I've had therapy, and I, I know these stories, and I know how, how the emotional cycles of life work and all that. 
But writing this book really did make me come to peace with my childhood in a way I never would have, that I thought I already had. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing about art and a kind of a secret thing that, that I thought I was writing something I already knew, and it turned out I wasn't. It turned out I learned a ton about about the arc of my life and my parents' struggle and my own by by writing about it, which sounds pretty obvious, but it it it, it actually happened that way. Just have a couple minutes left. Um, uh, Want to have you maybe wrap up with uh, just say a little bit more about about place, right? About this, you 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 didn't plan it really, but you ended up. This is this is home. I guess you'd you'd call it, you'd, you found you found home and healing uh, here, and I wonder what it is about place that uh, that promotes that kind of healing. Yeah, I think it's actually one something that language probably can't describe. You know, I mean, I know that when I first came out west, you know, when I was a young person, when I came to. Utah, actually, uh, where I went to grad school in Colorado, and I saw the Colorado Plateau, and I was in those canyons in southern Utah and in in the the areas around uh, Winter Park, Colorado, which is where I first lived uh, when I came west. That landscape just spoke to me. Like, it just made my heart feel good. It, 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 it also spoke to me as an artist. It said, you know, put some people down in here and and, and stuff will happen, <laughs> you know, it'll work out. Like, it was as if, you know, I, I, I was born, I was born to live in the Rocky Mountain region, you know, I, that, that that everything about me felt better there instantly. And um, and actually, I, I went to the Himalaya uh, a few times, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, and I felt the same way there when I got off the plane, and, and I wondered to myself, if it's simply just a certain kind of altitude that that my body feels better in, like if it's science, right, or if it's past lives, if like maybe I was a Buddhist monk, you know, in Tibet, and maybe that's why the high Rockies spoke to me so dramatically. You know, I, I, I don't know, of course, we don't know the answers, but but there's literally something inexplicable about me being, you know, I would say like, 6,000 feet and above that just makes me, makes everything work inside me, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, artistically. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of the actual ranch, just the, you know, years now of looking at that mountain, looking out my window, walking the fence line, feeding the animals. I mean, I think it's ritual as much as anything else that, you know, my, my cells are embedded with the cells of the ground and the creatures of the ranch. Well, it's a beautiful book. Um, it's out now, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. You can find Pam Houston at pamhouston.net. Uh, Pam Houston, uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been great talking with you. And uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow. We're going to be talking with BYU professor Brendan Rensink. His book is Native But Foreign, um, and he uh, compares indigenous peoples who traversed North American borders in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, because those borders kept changing. So what does it mean to be foreign and indigenous? has resonances, of course, for today as well. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Brown Monument serving Cache Valley since 1928, offering monuments and memorials with designs including hand etching, colored glass inlays, and portraits. New location at 791 South 100 West in Smithfield. Information at brownmonument.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, good intentions are nice, but when it comes to social programs, wouldn't it be even nicer to know what actually works? People just assume that if you do something that sounds good, that it's going <laughs> to have positive effects, but it's actually more complicated than that. When helping hurts, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks to Georgia Thompson for sending us this story. When the roads between Black Rock and Milford got too muddy to drive, that didn't slow my dad down. He hitched a ride on a freight train to Black Rock to see his sweetheart for the evening and caught another train home to Milford when the date was over. And that sweetheart was my mother. Call us with your stories at 800-826-1495 or send them to our website, upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. 